Well, good morning, Gospel Hope, and I am uh, so excited uh, to be able to share God's Word with you again as we continue to plow forward on this very special Serve Sunday. And so as you heard me already uh, mention during the time of our scripture reading, we are looking at Luke chapter 16, and that is titled as the uh, unjust, or excuse me, the dishonest steward, the dishonest steward. Quite an interesting text. I want to read that for us, but just in smaller pieces, and then we're going to begin to preach our way through. But first, let me pray. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, as always, every time, whether it be recorded, whether it be live, uh, when we get a chance to engage with your word, your word says uh, that wherever two or three are in your are gathered in your name, you are there in the midst. I believe, Lord God, that myself and those who are, Lord God, gathered around the television, as well as those, Lord God, who are even here helping uh, with this process. We are here, Lord God, in your name, for your glory, for your honor, and for the edification of your people. Would you be so kind as to make some manifestation of your spirit clearly available during our time of teaching so that, Lord God, your name would be lifted up, your son would be made more beautiful in our eyes, your word would be made more clear, and that our hearts might be more stirred to serve you. Uh, Lord God, help us now because we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them back to, uh, just in case you close them, to Luke chapter 16. And let's begin to walk through our text today, and that is verses 1 through 13. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is a story of uh, uh, the dishonest servant, and it starts this way, and this is Jesus telling the story of the parable. Uh, he also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what I will do so that when I am removed from management, people will receive me into their houses. The story proceeds from there that this manager who was caught being somewhat wasteful uh, crafted a game plan that he would call in each one of his master's debtors and he would uh, make an arrangement with them that they could write a bill really quickly for just short of what they owed and that favor that he would show each one of these debtors would then translate to the fact that later on when he lost his job as a manager he would be able to go in and live with them because he showed them favor. Interestingly enough, the master of the resources, when he found out that this uh, manager was doing this, he actually applauded him for his shrewdness. But guess who else applauded this manager for the way that he handled his business? Jesus. It's kind of interesting. Jesus says that the sons of this world, the people of this world, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light are. And it was interesting that Jesus then said, take a look at this shrewdness, this thing that this, that this uh, 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 unjust manager, this dishonest manager of resources did and learn from his examples. Now, when you read that, you might be saying, well, wait a minute, is Jesus telling us to, to, um, to be dishonest, to be, uh, to be unscrupulous, to, to move with a sleight of hand, to, 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 to cut off the top? What is he telling us to be? Be long sharks? No, not at all. The Lord Jesus Christ is alerting us to this attitude of what I would just call grind or hustle that this manager seems to have. 
You know what a hustle is, right? Many of you probably looking back at me, you may not use the, the, the vocabulary hustle or side hustle, but you probably all have one. Now, if you don't, let me define it for you. A side hustle is a gig or something that you do on the side of your main thing. Many of you may be employed as teachers or architects or engineers, or um, you may be um, housekeepers, you may be stay-home moms, um, you may be mechanics. Regardless of what you do, uh, you may be salespeople, but in all of the things that you do, something in you said, you know what, my main thing is not enough. I need a side hustle. And maybe your main thing, uh, you realize it wasn't enough because you wanted to make more money to go on, to save more money to get out of debt. You wanted to make more money in order to uh, pay for certain uh, luxury needs or to go on a special vacation. Or maybe you wanted to make more money uh, uh, to send your kids off to college. Or you wanted to make more money because you needed an emergency fund. But some, so sometimes the drivers for developing a side hustle, whether you're a school teacher by day and an Uber driver by night, or maybe you decided to sm start a small ice cream shop because when you were a kid you just dreamed of owning a Brewster's and and now you have the economic wherewithal to do so everybody has some kind of itch for a side hustle even if you don't call it that it's when your main thing really doesn't um, I, I guess address all of your needs to to work or, or, or to earn so sometimes the need for a side hustle doesn't necessarily come from an economic uh, perspective sometimes it's a dream that's unsatisfied sometimes it's just you know hey your training is in this particular area you got your degree uh, in the area of accounting but man you've always just wanted to do a little something else a little something extra and so you've built this proverbial lemonade stand in your life regardless of what form it takes on it's a side hustle. Well, I believe uh, kind of under that same ethic that every one of us in the body of Christ ought to have what I would call a heavenly side hustle. That's right. Every believer ought to have a heavenly side hustle. Every believer ought to have some, some kind of angle. While you may not be a professional Christian like myself or Ryan, who is officially employed by the church, you may not be on our staff, but I believe that every believer ought to have, if it's not your main thing, some kind of side thing that you do that is aimed at the king, service of the king. So everybody ought to have a heavenly side hustle. You see, a heavenly side hustle or any side hustle demands shrewdness. It demands that we work with a certain mindset to get things done in a, in a savvy and in a disciplined way. And so I'm going to further unpack exactly what I mean by every believer ought to have a heavenly side hustle uh, just as we dive into these first few verses. So if you're ready, join me in this way. When I say that every believer ought to have a heavenly side hustle, there are three big ideas that lunge out of this text at me. And I, the first one that I see is that the man who found out that his management was going to be taken away, this master who is analogous to God himself comes and says, hey, this rich master comes in and says, hey, I've heard tell that you have not been managing these resources that I gave you well. I want you to understand this, that we all have been given an account and we will all give an account. We all have been given an account, just like this manager in the text, we all have been given an account and we will all give an account on how we've been managing it. I don't care what you do in this life, there has been a certain deposit that God has made into every one of our lives. And that deposit can be effectively framed or shaped as you've got a certain amount of time, you've been given a certain amount of talents, and you've been given a certain amount of treasure, access to economic resources. And in those time, talents, and treasures, they represent an account that has been handed to you. And I 
I believe that the Bible is so beautiful in the way that it describes these resources because all that we have, your time, your talent, your treasures, your resources, your creativity, your brain power, your IQ, your home on the hill, your car, your credentials, all of it is under management. You are simply managing this unique allotment that the Lord has allowed you to have. You've been given an account. So we've all been given an account and we will all give an account on how we have been managing it just like this person found in today's text. And so when we say this, is there anywhere else in the Bible that would depict that? Well, of course you are familiar with the parable over in Matthew where each of the, uh, the servants were given a certain number of talents and the Bible says that they were given talents based on their several abilities. And so your account is not the same as my account. Your account is not the same size as my account. Your account is not the same type as my account. Each one of us has been given this unique allotment of time, talent, and treasure that God believes is, or God knows, is specific to our capacity and our opportunity to effectively deliver on it and manage it. And so the Bible elsewhere would put it this way when it comes to this universal distribution that God has made into all of our lives over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is in Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation, gold or silver or precious stones, hay, wood or straw, each one's work will become manifest and in the day it will be disclosed. That is in the day of judgment, it will be disclosed, but it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one of us has done. If the work that anyone has built on that foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through or only as through fire. This is such an interesting phrase because what it tells us is that with these accounts of various sizes that have been customized for who we are and how we can serve God and what we can do in this life, we are then called by the scriptures with these accounts to build on a foundation of Christ and that whatever we have been building takes on the characteristics of either gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. If you read those, I hope you've noticed a progression in the quality of those materials and their durability in terms of fire. Do you notice that each one of those things, gold, silver, precious stone, hay, wood, and fire, when exposed to fire, some will be completely consumed and burned up, but others of them will actually get better in quality? That's exactly what happens with gold. When gold is burned, it's melted down, and the, the dross and other things in it that don't belong are, are then, they run away, and when the gold becomes solid again, it is a better version of itself. The kind of work that we do for the Lord that will last will be the kind of work that can be tested by fire. But I also want you to notice what the Bible says, that the persons whose work is burned up, while they may suffer loss, they themselves will not be lost. It must be clear, and I want you to be clear, that as you are laboring with your time, your talent, and your treasure, you are not working to win salvation. We are not working to win our salvation. We are working in such a way to, to demonstrate to the Lord that we are worthy managers of this allotment and this account that he has given us. Every time Jesus gives a parable about this manager coming from a far place, he always has this certain duration where he comes back and brings about accountability. I don't know how you're feeling about life right now, whether you're young, old, or middle-aged, but there will always be a season in which the Lord ends the duration of our lives, and there's going to be this evaluation period of our work. And the, and the work needs to be foundation-worthy. 
What does it mean when Paul says that there is no other foundation that we can build on other than that in Christ? If we are in the body of Christ, what we build goes on that foundation, regardless of what it is, but it should be foundation worthy. Foundation worthy work is work that actually magnifies the Lord and it is meritous uh, uh, for the kind of work that the Lord has done in us. He is the foundation of the church. And so what we put out there for the Lord should match in merit what the Lord is doing for us. It can't match in, in, its, in, its, in its size or its scope because the Lord himself is a foundation. But you can obviously build with gold or silver or precious stones, or you can build with another type of quality, wood, hay, or straw. Hear me carefully. Our building needs to be foundation worthy. It needs to bring glory to the Lord. It needs to be complementary, right? We can't add to the Lord's capacity, but it needs to be complementary to the testimony of Christ. But our work not only should be foundation worthy, it should also be fireproof, right? We want to work for the Lord in such a way that it can stand the test and get better with time when it is tested, as opposed to being completely blown away. But we want to also note not only that our work would be foundation worthy or fireproof, but we need to work in a way and with a certain kind of attitude that clearly understands that we are working from our salvation, not for our salvation. Nothing that you do is going to win your salvation. We are working from our salvation, not for our salvation. What do I mean by that? Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should work, that we should walk in them. So we have been saved for a certain work, not saved by our work. And so that's a beautiful thing to consider that when we work, we can work with a certain anxiety-free conscience that we are not trying to please God to win our salvation. We are trying to please God to say that this work is worthy of the salvation that you have given me. So we are not working for our salvation. We are actually working out our salvation. In other words, because our salvation has already been secured, it has already been granted, it has already been given, we are working it out. We are showing the world what it looks like to be one of those for which Christ has completed the work of redemption. So then we work out our salvation in this life. Or as it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, here it is. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When we serve faithfully and we put down foundation worthy, fireproof work, we are working from our salvation to frame something for the world that makes them look at God and say, ah, I want to know more about him. What is this work about? Who are these people? What does it mean to know him? And that is why we build on this foundation of Christ. We have all been given an account and we will all give an account as to whether or not our work is foundation worthy fireproof and are we working from our salvation that is the completed work of Christ and that means God is working in us and through us or are we out here trying to work for our salvation this is one of the first accounts that we will give but the Bible goes further when we look at this parable or this story of the dishonest manager and this is the part that I really want us to pay attention to it was so interesting when he found out that his manager was going to call him or his master was going to call him into account. And he says, he's going to take away my management. He says, you know what? I'm too weak to dig and I'm too proud to beg. 
that pinch, that place of feeling like you don't have anywhere to go, it was where his shrewdness was born. I asked the question, how many of us are being shrewd? How many of us are, 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 are developing that kind of creativity where we manage through crisis the way that the world does? Let's just be honest. So oftentimes, we as believers look at the world and we see how hard they grind and how gritty they go after the things that they want. And oftentimes, we shake our head, we suck our teeth, and we, and we just test, test, test. And we look at them in a very condescending way because we say, oh, look how feverishly they're working for things that are going to be destroyed or for stuff that doesn't matter. And then the Lord Jesus says, yeah, look at that work ethic. Look at that work ethic. People who are working for something that is hopeless or have anchored their hope in something that is not eternal in nature seem to be outworking the body of Christ. The Lord says, look at their shrewdness, look at their cunning, look at their creativity, look at their commitment to their craft and bring that kind of greediness and shrewdness into the way that you work for the Lord. I mean, if these people who are not working toward any heavenly reward can grind like that, why not you who the, com the completed work of Christ is already in place for, who already have a home and a hope in heaven? Why wouldn't you work like that considering the great work that God has done for each one of us? That's what Jesus is saying. So no longer let us critique those who are outside of Christ for how hard they grind, but let us look at that pattern of hard work and ask ourselves, do we work like that for our Lord? Take a look at verses five through nine. Five through nine. So he was the plan. He was the he was the hustle that that our that our dishonest manager came up with. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, every single one of them, he didn't skip a beat, every single one of them, detail oriented, his debtors one by one in verse five. So he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said to him, a hundred measures of oil. All right. Then he said, all right, take your bill. Sit down quickly. Look at that urgency. Sit down quickly and write out 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, all right, take your bill and write down 80. And his master, the one who was actually firing him, the one that was bringing him into accountability, calling him on the carpet, actually applauded his shrewdness. Man, would I love to stand before the Lord and have him to applaud my shrewdness or applaud my, my hustle my sense of getting after it, my detail orientation, my dedication to getting things done quickly with urgency, just like we see this man in the text. And I would hope that that would be ours too. But, but, but here's another question or a statement that I believe emerges from this particular set of passages. You see, in the first one, we asked ourselves or we told ourselves that uh, we all have been given an account for which we will all give an account on how we've been managing it. But here's something else I believe in this little section that comes forward, and that is this. We all have something that we're good at but is our something having eternal impact? We all, just like the manager here, we all have something that we are good at, something that we're good at, but is that something having eternal impact? Now, I want you to pay careful attention to the shrewdness of the manager featured in the text. The Bible tells us that the reason that he crafted this plan was because after his days of management were over, he wanted to make sure that he could have somewhere to dwell and stay. This is an analogy for us that when this life is over, will we have laid up treasure for us in eternal places? Jesus put it this way in verse nine, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. What he means is not become a loan shark or a, a, a pimp or something crazy like that, but what he's saying is, 
He says unrighteous wealth is wealth that does not register in the kingdom of heaven. It's unrighteous wealth. It does not achieve righteousness. But he says, make friends amongst yourselves. In other words, by means of unrighteous wealth, the way you manage your life today, manage it well so that when it fails, because he didn't say if it fails, he says earthly wealth will fail so that when it fails, verse nine, that they may receive you into eternal dwellings. He's obviously not talking about worldly people who don't have hope in Christ being able to get you into heaven. What Jesus is saying here is manage your time the way that you have it now in a way that produces an eternal home or an eternal dwelling for you then. In other words, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. Or, and I would say the way that we see this manager working this out begs this question. We all have, we all have something that we're good at, but is our something having eternal impact? Look at Romans chapter 12, verses six through eight with me. Having gifts, talking about us, having gifts that differ according to the grace uh, given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving uh, to the one who teaches in his teaching, to the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, to the one who leads with zeal, and to the one who does acts of mercy, do it with cheerfulness. In other words, the Bible calls us to say whether you are marshalling a supernatural gift, a divine deposit from God that, that only has applicability set lest the Lord breathe, breathe on it, right? A spiritual gift, like some of the ones mentioned here. He said, if you've got a spiritual gift, leverage it, use it, use it, don't sit on it, don't waste it. This is something that the Lord had, has made you supernaturally good at by way of his own deposit. Use it for the kingdom. But then he also says, not only gifts, but also do you have certain practical graces? Anything that you do, if it's just showing mercy, if you're a person who has significant experience by way of a professional credential or some kind of training, this represents a grace that God has given you. You've grown up in a country or in a time or with a skill or in a household, uh, uh, in a season in American history where you can craft certain skills. And the Bible is asking this, whether it be a supernatural gift or whether it be a practical grace, are we using these things for the common good? And when I say the common good, I'm referencing 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses uh, 4 through 7. Read them. It says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And why does God empower them? Why does God empower the gifts, the activities, and all their varieties? To each one, verse 7, to each one is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Whatever God has given you, whether it be a grace through a certain sequence of experiences or whether it be a gift supernaturally, it is to be deployed for the common good, for the further flourishing of God's people, for the further flourishing of the earth, for the, for the, for the further multiplication of God's image and idea uh, uh, in the earth. Okay. And so, when it, when it comes to that, when we, ha we have something that we're all good at, ask ourselves a question. Is it having eternal impact? Here's a test. Um, or here's a test or here's a statement. We should strive to let our fruit have just as much fame as our name. How do we know? This is a litmus test as to whether or not this is how we can, we can know or, or just a brief measurement as to whether or not we're taking the things that we are good at and I'm making them or causing or allowing them to have eternal impact. 
That is, the, 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 our fruit, because Jesus told his disciples that you can identify someone by virtue of their fruit. I'd like to know, are you identifiable by your fruit? Let me give you an example. What if I were to say to you, um, pomegranate, pineapple, cherries, coconut, watermelon. What do you think about? Well, common sense, you probably think about coconut when I said coconut. Or you thought about watermelon when I said watermelon. Or you thought about cherries when I said cherries. If I said star fruit, you probably think about star fruit. I'm just kind of planting thoughts in your mind. But let me say, let me say something else to you. What if I said the DeKalb Farmer's Market? Now what do you think about? Notice what happened? When I say DeKalb Farmer's Market, if you've ever been, you don't think about the words DeKalb Farmer's Market. You think about all that fruit and all of that stuff that's underneath that roof. Notice how the fruit of the DeKalb Farmer's Market has got just as much fame as the name. But when I talk about the fruit separately, you're like, oh, okay, I just see fruit. But when you say the name DeKalb Farmer's Market, you think about its fruit. I want you to, I want, think about this. When I, when I say the name Jalen Jenkins, you don't just think about Jalen Jenkins, you think about his fruit, you think about worship. When I, say, when I say James, you don't just think about James, you probably think about someone playing the guitar. If I say Helena, you don't just think about Helena, you think about someone who serves faithfully and greets. If I, if I, if I say, you know, Valerie O'Brien, you don't just think about some lady named Valerie. You might, you might but then I say, no, I'm talking about the girl who works um, out there in Connections. And you go, oh yeah. Notice how people who serve, and, I, and if I skipped anybody, please don't get mad, don't throw anything at your TVs or computers. I'm just using a few examples, but you can kind of see how when your fruit is just as famous as your name, it's a beautiful thing. Now fame, don't get, I'm not saying everybody's trying to be famous, but what I'm saying is we ought to be serving in a way, the thing that we're good at, if it's having eternal impact, people ought to know us by it in a way in the body, in the things that we do. So I want you to think about that for just a moment, that we all have something that we're good at, but is our something having eternal impact? In these final stretch of verses, I want to show you something else. In verses 10 through 13, Jesus really hammers home a series of biblical wisdoms. He says in verse 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth or worldly uh, materials, who will entrust you with true or eternal riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another person's, if, you just, if you're not a faithful manager, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or he will love the other, or he will be devoted to one or he will despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I want you to hear me very clearly on this. We all have a track record. As Jesus gives us these, these kinds of elements of like, if you're faithful in a little bit, you'll be faithful in much and et cetera. We all have a track record of faithfulness. And that track record tells us where our devotion is. We all have some kind of track record of faithfulness. Your faithfulness can be subpar. Your, your, your faithfulness can be average. Your faithfulness can be superior. But we all have some kind of track record of faithfulness and that track record tells the world and others where our devotion is. It does. 
The Apostle Paul gives us something, uh, quite a gift in the, in, the, in the passage, if you want to gauge for your faithfulness. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and following, he says, For I am already being poured out um, as a drink offering at the time of my departure. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only for me, but also to all who have loved, who have, who love him at his appearing. Paul had a track record of faithfulness and he defined it by having been poured out, fighting a good fight, keeping the faith and finishing the race. I believe that in this, Paul has given us kind of really a fourfold rubric that we can look at our own service and ask ourselves some key questions. What does it mean to say that one has been poured out? Well, this phrase poured out finds its first home in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament catalog of sacrifices, the drink offering was one that was poured out on the offering as a statement of thanksgiving to God, but it also was oftentimes poured out in complement with other offerings. And when it hit the altar, it gave off, uh, for the, with the, along with the burnt offering, it gave off an aroma that was pleasing to God. It was poured out. Jesus, in the night that he ate the uh, Last Supper with his disciples, would say that I am being poured out. Uh, and so this idea of being poured out is to be fully spent in a way that is pleasing to God. Paul said he was being poured out or he was ready to be poured out. I want to ask you a question. Are you being poured out? Are you being poured out? Th this is a test. Like, like you've got a track record of faithfulness. What are you pouring your life into? Are you being poured out in a way that would produce a, a, a fragrant aroma for God? Or you're being poured out for something else that doesn't even register in heaven. Are you being poured out for something that the world would applaud, but Jesus could care less? Are you being poured out? What do we mean when we talk about being poured out? When I, when I think about being poured out, I, I, I think about um, when I come home sometimes and I see uh, the milk, an empty carton of milk that has been poured out in our home, an empty carton of milk just sitting on the counter. And I know that means we're completely out of milk, that the milk is done. It is spent. It is used up. We don't have any more. And I look to my left and I see my teenager sitting in front of the television at 6.30 p.m. with his fifth bowl of cereal for the day because he didn't get up and make a sandwich. To know that our milk was poured out in that way aggravates me. Or if I go over to the sink and I look in there and I see rotten milk, that rotted in the box and has been poured out in that way. It, it wasted. It never was used properly. I, 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 I'm aggravated by this. But if I come into the kitchen and I see milk that has been poured out, the empty container, and I see my wife Carrie with an apron tied nicely around her waist, her hair pulled back in a ponytail and, uh, and a little flower on her cheek, and I look over in the corner and I see that big two-ton KitchenAid mixer uh, over in a bowl of some kind of special app mixture and this apparatus is going around, I'm pleased with the milk having been poured out because I now know that it is being poured out in a pleasing way. It's going to make something that fills the house with a fragrant aroma. It's not being wasted. It's not being rotted. It's not being used unscrupulously, but it's being made in a way that's going to provide something that is delicious for us. I ask you, is your life being poured out in a way that is delicious and honorable for God? Because all of us are going to be poured out. How are we going to be spent? We ourselves are the proverbial drink offering before God. How are you being poured out? But the Apostle Paul didn't just say he would be poured out. He also said in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. Hear me carefully. 
When Paul says he's fought the good fight, it doesn't mean that he is a good fighter or that he fights good. This isn't about winning versus losing because the completed work, the greatest and the greatest fight or the wrestling that we could ever do has been won by Christ. He has already won the battle. He has already gained victory over sin, death, and the devil. So what does Paul mean when he says that he is fighting the good fight? It means that he is picking the right fights. He is fighting for things that actually matter to the kingdom. Every one of us is involved in a fight, and I would ask you to analyze your fights. Are you fighting the right fight? Are 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 you angry and passionate about the right things? Are you going toe to toe with your fellow man over the right things? Are you, all of us are in some kind of fight, but are you fighting good fights, right? Good fights, ones that are honorable before the Lord. Paul says not only has he fought a good fight, he says also that he has finished the race. There in verse 7, he says he has finished the race. Uh, The Bible has no shortage of race or Olympic analogies based on the culture that these uh, Bible characters are couched in. But this idea of finishing the race is a beautiful one. Because the Apostle Paul, when he says that I have finished my race, he calls to mind, I think for each one of us, What does finishing look like for us? Is finishing our race just somebody who's getting old and I'm just tired and I can't do anything anymore? I don't think that's finishing a race. You see, finishing your race well is defined by what is your finish line? What is your finish line? Think about that. Ask yourself, what is my finish line? How do I know what are the markers in my life that says that I am finishing well, that the time and the talents and the treasure that God has given me, I have spent them well and that I am I am done with this life. I am finished. I have finished well. How do you know when you finish? What is your finish line? Is your finish line a certain age? Do you just have a goal to live into your 80s and you say, yeah, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. I, I did everything I wanted to do. Is, is your finish line a certain lifestyle? You know what? You know what? Look at my 401k. Look at my other, you know, stuff that I got stacked up. You know, I, I, I'm good to go. I, I, I'm finished. Is your finish line just getting your kids into college and, and, and having some grandkids? Is your finish line um, uh, uh, to build a Fortune 500 company? Is your finish? What is your finish line? Every one of us needs to really think soberly about what our finish line is. Is it lifestyle? Is it age? Is it a certain stage? Is it to be in a certain location? You know, I've always wanted to live in Vermont and ski. I've always wanted to go to Colorado. I've always wanted to live in L.A. I've always wanted to live in Hollywood Hills. What represents your finish line? You need to have one. The Apostle Paul says something so interesting when he talks about his finish line in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He says, I could choose to to go home with the Lord or to be here with you, which would be needful. But he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Have you ever read that passage before? Every time I read that particular verse, it used to bother me because I was like, Lord, man, I I love you, but I'm I'm not quite there yet. I'm not quite that spiritual. I, I, I believe I should be living like that, that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And, and, and what I come to discover is that while this is theologically true, that it didn't personally bring me peace. I wasn't there yet. It was theologically true, but it wasn't personally a part of my mindset just yet for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I'm not ready to die. And, and, and I don't know if you feel that passage the same way. You don't have to try to be hyper-spiritual and make yourself feel that. Now, if you are at peace with that, knock yourself out. You know, amen. We praise God for you. But here's what I really believe, that this theological truth, in order for it to become a personal peace, a place where we can actually say, Lord, this is how I live. Because there's many things in the Bible that we know them to be principal truths. We say, you know what, Lord, that's true, but I'm just not there yet. I haven't gripped that. This thing hasn't become a part of my life yet. 
I liken it to a person who has a valid passport. Anybody here got a valid passport? I do. I could leave the country at any time, right? I have a valid passport, but I'm not ready because I don't have a bag packed. I believe that what the Apostle Paul is talking about, that when he said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, he's saying, not only am I saved, not only do I have a good relationship with the Lord, I'm locked in, I got a passport, but my bag is packed. My work here is complete. And there is a certain peace that the Lord will bring all of us when that time does arrive. And so if you don't feel that yet, if you know you got a passport, but you ain't ready for the trip, your bag is not packed, that means there's still more grind. There's still more hustle. There's still more work to do. Or better yet, we, we should be taking at this point the God-given passions and give them gospel expression. We all have a God-given passion. There's things that the Lord has raised up within us where we look at our world and we say, that's broken. For some of you, it's justice. For some of you, it's gender equality. For some of you, it's issues of racism. For some of you, it's child care. For some of you, it's health and wellness. For some of you, it's poverty. For some of you, it's, you know, it's kids. For some of you, it's, it's apologetics. For some of you, it's evangelism. For some of you, it's, I don't know, whatever your thing is, God has made something uh, uh, in all of us, we're passionate. It, we, we have a God-given passion. And I say this, you're not finished until your God-given passion gets gospel expression. When your God-given passion gets gospel expression, you, either, and if you look at your church or you look at your world and you don't see a gospel expression of your God-given passion, here's your call to action. Create something. If you, if you don't believe you got the mojo to create, then collaborate with somebody who does create. And if you don't see anybody else's that you could collaborate with, find an organization that's doing that work and coordinate with them. But you have action steps that you can take, either create, collaborate, or coordinate with someone who is giving gospel passion or gospel expression to whatever is part of your passion, your skills, or your experience in this life. We want to do this because Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 reads as follows. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The believer's life ought to be leveraged with savvy. We ought to be outworking the world, not in the world's works, but we ought to be outworking the world. We ought to be working with the same savvy and tenacity to give full-blown gospel expression to whatever our passions are or the things that God has plugged into our life and made us upset about, angry about, interested in, uh, uh, skilled in. We ought to give them gospel expression. We are called to serve and to build on a foundation, a foundation that it, with works that are fireproof. And so every believer ought to have a heavenly side hustle. Something that they're building and doing for the kingdom that'll last, that honors Christ. Um, we're going to spend some time later on uh, today uh, in our service uh, talking about some unique opportunities to serve. Uh, we'll, we're going to have a, a brief video that we hope that you'll uh, enjoy. And in following that, uh, we're going to be sending out some communication actually on how you can get involved with some of the unique service opportunities that are available now in this particular season. And if you don't see your thing, create. And if you don't feel like you create, then collaborate. And if you can't collaborate, then coordinate. But by all means, do not sit on the shelf and curdle like rotten milk to be poured out, right? Do something that honors God. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you and we thank you and we praise you for every opportunity to preach your word, to hear your word and to apply your word. Um, help us now, Lord God, to hear you clearly in the ways that we should be working for you earnestly. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.